0: I don't know if you ever seen those corny signs outside of churches. Have you seen that? I've actually had some pictures up here, but I'm afraid we're going to have to go without them. There's one actually in a local church. I just took a photo of it the other day, and it says this: "What is missing from CH-CH?" Question mark. And then underneath, in sort of garish writing, is the the letters "You Are Church." You are in the middle. It's, it's pretty corny. But I came across a, a website, which is actually quite amusing. It's cornychristiansigns.com, I think it was. <coughs> and someone has made a wonderful collection, most of them American, but just bear with me, if you may, if you may for a second. Now, some are profound, actually. One had the wonderful quote from Jim Elliott. And I know some of you are reading his wife's biography at the moment. He, he quoted this, uh, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The famous uh, missionary who died in Ecuador. Some are patriotic, just simply say, God bless America. Others pose questions are you living the empowered life or the exhausted life? Some are, uh, seek to encourage, but I think they probably confuse. Aspire to inspire before you expire. <laughs> My personal favourite was this. It uh, <laughs> says Do you hate uh, corny Christian signs? Amen. And that was it. It was lovely. Imagine driving past that. Now how often are you being told, as Christians, to, to speak a particular way, to do a particular thing, to pray at certain times, to enhance you, to place value on you? See, all those signs, what, uh, what they were all pointing towards is you. It's all about you and very little about God, who He is. And what he has done. See that is what happens with kind of popular religion. Popular Christianity. It's all about you and me. What we are. What we're able to do. What we're able to gain. To experience. To understand. And of course that is right isn't it? In part. And as a concept that shouldn't be strange to us. For what we do in this world. We kind of expect something back don't we? We don't believe in a kind of karma like the Buddhist does. uh, But It is natural for our society to think that way. Our parents have brought us up to believe that. And of course, again, it's partially true. What we give out will determine what we receive back. And in churches, that kind of popular Christianity, it appeals. It's a message that we actually all want to hear. Because it's man-centric, isn't it? It scratches the itch that we all naturally have. But it is only partially true and to the disillusionment of many in christian churches and world religions the inadequacy of that kind of man-centeredness well it's it's kind of exposed isn't it in the hard times of life when you lose your job perhaps in the doubts that you have in your financial struggles perhaps even in your relationship struggles in singleness in barrenness or maybe in sickness and illness. Popular origin, you see, it's, it's, it's all about you and I. It's about me. What I'm able to do. What I'm able to get, to experience. But the extraordinary thing as we, we read this book of Ruth. And as we read the whole Bible. Is we see that the primary message. The primary emphasis is always on God. And who he is. And what he has done. God is always the dominant figure of this book. And God ought to be the dominant figure of our lives. He's not secondary. He's not some kind of life coach or therapist figure. There in our times of great need or great delight. You know, sharing in our moments of both elation and despair. He knows he's actually there every moment. All the time. We are not the centre of the universe and we are certainly not the centre of the Bible. Rather we are creatures of a creator who knows our every thought, every motive, every movement and has done even since before we were born. He's always there, always present, always knowing. The problem is that too often, as we see in, this pa- in our passage today, that we turn our backs on God. And we make ourselves the centre of our own worlds. But the wonderful good news of the Bible. Is that despite God being the creator and sustainer of this whole world. And despite our stubborn pride to recognise him as such. The amazing and gracious news of God is that he has called us to know him. To love him. To serve him in his wonderful creation and even beyond the grave to be with him in glory face to face. And it is for that kind of wisdom that we are turning to the book of Ruth. For that universal kind of God-centeredness in our lives. Ruth will help us, I hope, to realign ourselves before God, seeing that he is the almighty one. That he has all power and we are just very weak in comparison. That he is sovereign all, over all things. Even the smallest things in our lives where we may have seemingly lost control. Reading Ruth, I've been praying this week with, with the help of course and the spirit of God. Will draw us away from that natural inclination that we all have. Toward that kind of man-centeredness. Ruth will draw us to become more God-centric, I pray, seeing him in all the details of our lives, all the decision-making of our lives as we live day to day. Let's think about a bit of history for a moment. Historically, Ruth was one of what's called the the five festal scrolls. Um, They were to be read at various seasons and seasonal kind of celebrations of the Jewish people. Uh, The other ones were Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, Esther and Lamentations Ruth being the fifth And it's commonly, uh, well it was always read At the feast of the Passover Of course, because that was when it was associated with the barley harvest As we've just heard in the last verse of chapter 1 Unlike most of the New Testament letters We don't really know why this letter was written Um, It's a story, we see it's a beautiful love story As you get into chapters 2 and 3 But scholars have debated fiercely why we have it here in the Bible. Most agree at its simplest form that it is a simple love story. But it's a love story where we see mercy and kindness. And ultimately God's mercy and kindness. And that interestingly is played out through something that we describe as the providence of God. We see that in our little first point there. You see the providence of God. Of God. Now, that, that word comes from the Greek word, pronoia, which essentially means it's foresight, making provision for something beforehand. Now, we do that as human beings, don't we? Of course we do. I mean, many of you have got kind of OCD tendencies, haven't you? You're, you're kind of compulsive in the way that you plan for things, contingency freaks, you know, all that kind of stuff. Well, we know what that kind of means in some way. But when applied to God in his providence, his alone means that he infallibly accomplishes everything, every detail that he's ordained. Very simply put, that basically means what God wants happens in every detail. Providence, therefore, encompasses everything. Human existence, the events of lives, the highs and lows of our lives, all of this in our world. And all as a result of God's providential will and determination. It, it, he is king over everything. And though at times God's providence has been challenged within kind of church history, the people of God throughout church history, those faithful to His word, have drawn comfort because in God's providence we see His eternal protective care. Far from being a despised kind of theme of the Bible, providence is never understood as, as thwarting someone's freedom, as we see in Naomi and Ruth uh, throughout this same story. Rather, the people have always seen it as a privilege and a comfort. So we're going to have a look at this providence of God. And we're going to look today particularly um, as we see it for the present time, today, hence why I put that in the title of the talk. We see it here in the early, chapter, early, early verses of chapter 1. But to be honest, it goes throughout the book. But I'm just going to emphasise it uh, this week particularly. So we're going to see God's providential work here. And we're going to see it even in the darkest times of life. And we see that uh, as we look in verse 1. Because we see there in the days when the judges ruled. That's our second little sub-point there. See, this whole story at the beginning is set with the backdrop of very, very dark times in the world. And we see that in the days when the judges ruled. Now, just to get your historical minds in there, we've, we've kind of come from the Exodus where Moses brings uh, God's people out of slavery in Egypt, wandering through the desert 40 years to, to the brink of entering the land. And then you get to Joshua and they, they enter the land and conquer the land. Um, It's it's after those times, but it is before the times when God's people uh, demanded a king of the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel um, um, chapter 8. So you're kind of sitting in that period between those kind of major episodes within God's people. Date-wise, we're talking about 1350 to 1050 BC, but what was it like? Flip back, just one page, to the end of Judges, Judges chapter 21, verse 25, and you'll get a flavour Of what it was like. Judges chapter 1. 21 verse 25 says. In those days Israel had no king. So it's when the judges ruled. And everyone did. As he saw fit. And basically we know from those times. As we uh, glean from history. And in the bible as well. It was a time of serious idolatry. Turning from God. To worship other idols. It was a time of great loose morality. Of broad ethics. These were, if you like, the hallmarks of a kingless Israel, the days when the judges ruled. But as you go on in verse one, there's another kind of indicator of what the times were like. There was famine in the land, it says. Now, I doubt any of us know really what that is like to live through, to not know when the next meal is coming for ourselves or for our loved ones. But we know actually from the very beginning of the Bible that God sovereignly uses famine. Again and again, for example, as we'll see in our home groups in Genesis chapter 41, following with Joseph and his family, God sovereignly uses famine in a significant way to deal with his people. Even Moses, actually, in his last sermon to God's people before they entered the land in Deuteronomy, uh, calls out to the people on warning them from their idolatrous ways and their unfaithfulness, saying that behavior, that attitude will never be overlooked by God. And if they continued in it, famine would come to bring them to repentance. And in this story of Ruth, as we read verse 1 here, God has been faithful to that promise. In the days when judges ruled, those, those days of kind of wild abandon, of reckless living, and of unfaithfulness to God. In those days, God did not ignore his people. But through famine would draw them providentially back to himself. You see, God can use all sorts of situations, can't he? All sorts of people, all sorts of circumstances in our lives to bring us back to him. God still providentially works, doesn't he? Through seemingly painful times, and perhaps some of us are going through them right now, to bring true Israel his church, his people, you and I, back to himself. The writer to the Hebrews puts it this way in chapter 12 to encourage Christians. He simply says, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? It goes on in verse 10. Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines, for, uh, disciplines us for our good. Why? That we may share in his holiness. He can sovereignly, providentially use hardships to make us more like Christ. His greatest goal. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Interestingly though, here in Ruth chapter 1. The people we hear about, they don't repent, do they? At first. Rather, they just get out of there. They don't want to accept God's discipline and face some serious consequences as a result. But at this stage of the story, and we get to our first point here, Naomi being the big character of these opening verses, it seems like she's—you know got everything, doesn't it? She may have ignored God and, and his discipline in the family, but she's got everything. Verse two, husband, two boys. Uh, That means she's got security. She's got a great heritage. She's nephrophied from Judah. uh, Judah. But what do they do? Well, what we see is that Elimelech takes Naomi and his family to go and live with the Moabites. Now, that is a very unusual move. Um, The Moabites were hardly Israel's greatest friends. I had a little map up there. If you know the kind of land we're talking about, Moab is kind of just... Um, Due east, really, of uh, Jerusalem and Bethlehem, that area there of Judah. And it's a foreign place. Looking east, you would be able to see the hills of Moab, which Moses once stood on before entering the promised land. They were close in proximity. But the two places were very hostile towards one another. Now known as Jordan, the country of Moab and its kings were notorious Many of you, if you know your Bibles, especially the book of Numbers, you'll know King Balak, who was a Moabite. Um, <clears throat> you know, Record I think it's Numbers of 12 onwards. Balak hired Balaam, if you remember, to, to curse God's people. It backfired on him a little bit, as you, that's an understatement, and it ended up that the Moabites were cursed by God. They became an alien people, a despised people, Numbers 25 says. And as a result, they were not able to enter God's land. And also, critically, Numbers 25 shows that they weren't able to marry God's people. But now Elimelech, you see, takes his family into this hostile country. Now, they weren't fighting at this stage. But they did worship, at that point, a, a god, a vile god, as it's described, Kimosh. Clearly, this was not an easy move for Naomi and the family. Let's think about Naomi for a moment, if we can. Think of her circumstances. How would it have been for her bringing up her family in an alien place, having fled famine in Israel? Now, they may have food to eat. Their stomachs may be full. But the family have turned their backs on their homes, their friends, perhaps wider family. But ultimately, they've turned their backs on God. And it gets worse for Naomi. We see in verse 3, her husband dies, then her two sons, Marlon and Chilion, they marry Moabite women. Orpah, and we're introduced to Ruth here. Even though God has warned, as I said, to not marry Moabite women. So think about Naomi. What a situation she finds herself in. She's in an idolatrous country. She can't now easily leave because all of her security, her you know, what she depends on, her husband is gone. He's dead. Her leader has died in that sense. Her sons have married women. She knew that God had forbidden uh, to marry. But it gets worse. After 10 years, verse 4, her, so- her two sons died. Now, if you knew what their names mean in the Hebrew, you, you realise they've got absolutely no chance anyway. Because Marlon and Kilion basically means sickness and spent. Can you imagine your, ch- your parents giving you names like that? I mean, you've got no hope, have you, at all? But, yeah, you know, so point one, it, it, Naomi seems, she's, she's turned her back on God, but she seems to have everything to start with. But ignoring God's promise to always provide for his people, this rebellious family, led by Elimelech, walk away from God to a hostile and godless place. What an idiot Elimelech was. Ignoring God, not leading his family to love and trust God. Rather, what he does is he sees the food, he sees the immediate thing that he wants and, and his you know, stomach is rumbling and he goes, oh, I'll take them there. Walking away from God, not trusting in God's uh, promises to provide for his people and not sitting under God's discipline. They were in God's land it's God's people but, but they did not listen to his word. That is the critical thing. When a hard time came, they said, oh, I don't want to listen to you anymore. They saw famine and they ran away. And it is so easy, isn't it, to do. When you take your eyes and your heart and your mind away from God and his word for just a moment and a hard time comes, we can begin to focus on ourselves more and more and more and less and less on God. And in family life, I see it all the time. Parents put their children first. They put their education first. Putting their understanding and love for God as a dim and distant second. Not trusting in his word and his provision. So people make decisions to move, uh, to invest and sacrifice huge amounts of money in their children's educations. All that kind of stuff. Primarily for the sake of their comfort and their prestige. And not for the glory of God and the godliness of the child. Oh, it's, that's irrelevant for most of you, isn't it, at this stage? But let's think about you for a moment. What, about, what happens when the next job offer comes up? Yeah, you get a big promotion, that your, your boss sort of slides your way, but you'll have to move to some other place. Yeah, it might be good and profitable for you to move financially, to climb up the corporate ladder, but does it ever cross your mind whether it is good and profitable for you and your relationship with God? Do you even consider checking out where there's a great church in the place where you might move? Naomi has everything, but her husband does not lead his family in obedience to God. He doesn't cling to God and his word. Rather, he turns his back on God and puts God in second place. He fails to listen and trust in God. What results? Well, Naomi loses everything. We've looked at verses three and five. But that is, I mean, it's a pretty uh, kind of solemn uh, end very quickly for for, for Naomi, isn't it? Look at the end of verse 5. She's left without her two sons and her husband. I mean, just think about it, Naomi's perspective for just a second. Her husband are dead. Both sons are dead. All her security in this world has gone in the space of 10 years. And it's made worse. She's living in now as an alien in this foreign land. There's no benefit system. There's no NHS. She's getting old, as we heard. Naomi's husband's family name has seemingly gone too. All that she'd invested in her life up until this point is wiped out. And we are only at verse 5. I mean, what does a widowed, childless alien do i mean what more could happen to her i mean i don't know if you've ever been in a moment like that in your life where you feel that you know just like you want to crumple up in a ball on your bed or like fall on your knees and nothing else could possibly go wrong in that week or that month or that that year what do you do in those moments of your life where do you turn well, many, many people around you, I guess, and maybe even in the church, sadly, would say, oh, you need, to, you need to look inward. You need to dig yourself out. Stiff, British, upper lip kind of, we'll get out, beat our chest, and off we go. Um, but how successful is that way? And for how long? I guess Naomi, at this point in her life, when we get to the end of verse 5, she must have felt completely spent, mustn't she? Hopeless. Everything was gone. Nothing was left. All her security in life vanished. And this is where God intervenes providentially. We get to our third point here because we see God's kindness here. Because God providentially provides for Naomi. Let's turn to verse 6 again. Because the story just turns around as does she. When she heard in Moab that the Lord, that is the covenant name, there are capitals, so that's Yahweh in the Hebrew. When he had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. It's a tiny thing of news, a tiny portion of news. But it will change her life forever. God had come to the aid of his people. So we see, she said, she prepared to return home. Do you see that word there? Well, in Hebrew, that literally means to repent. It's the same word. But it goes further than just good intentions. and Oh yeah, I might do that in my mind. Look at verse seven. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place. She took steps. She moved away from the, the foreign idolatrous land that she'd been living in and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah, God's place, where God was present, where God's blessing was known. Where there was famine, God now provides food. He doesn't forsake his promises. The Bible recognises from cover to cover that God is providentially in control. He's sovereign over all things. Yes, we all have a certain amount of responsibility under that sovereignty. But God has all power, as we saw in Christ last week, actually, in Matthew 28, that He has all power as a resurrected and glorified Savior. We see His providence here, though, in this story of Naomi and Ruth. How? Because He provides, He provides food. Naomi had everything, but through her husband's rebellion, she is brought to her knees and turns her back on God. Oh, she turns back to God, sorry. the other way around. In Naomi's heart and mind, what's happened? You see, the focus has shifted, hasn't it? It is now, she's not focusing on what she lacks, on her needs and who she is. It is now focusing on who God is and what God provides. Oh, let's be honest, it doesn't, it doesn't last in Naomi, even in chapter one. She's a bit of a misery, isn't she? As she comes back uh, to, uh, to her home. But from, for this dark moment, she does as we ought to do in dark times that we might face and we may be facing right now. Naomi sees God's provision. In his providential provision of food. And she depends on it. She trusts in it. What we see here um, with this provision uh, of food. In this Old Testament story. Simply foreshadows a quenching of (coughs) eternal hunger. That only the eternal provider of food. Eternal food. Can bring. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Hence we had our first reading in John 6. As he said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never be thirsty. I mean, God is providentially bringing food to his people in their time of need. So God providentially provides for us with the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone is the one who can bring us the eternal food Um, in himself, the bread of life. All we need to do is turn to him as Naomi did, and trust as we go back to Him for our eternal lives. Naomi trusted at this moment and turned back to God. She repented, she repented, she turned to Him, and He provided. And the same is true of us through God's provision in Christ. So that is spiritual and eternal. But if you are here tonight and you, you hunger for something. More than just the world around you. You have an eternal hunger inside you. Which we all naturally have. And if you are here and you have been doing exactly as Elimelech and Naomi have been doing. Running away from God. If you are here and you feel low and empty and spent. As Naomi did. As her husband and her two boys had died. Can I just suggest to you do exactly what they did. You return home. You repent and come back to your heavenly Father. Trust in God's provisions. If you like to use the illustration to the barley fields of Christ. Your heavenly food in that bread of heaven. Now God may not alleviate you from the darkness and difficulty that you may be facing right now. But you you will never, if you turn to him, feel that what you face right now is too much, too burdensome. Why? Because... You are safe in God's providential hands and ultimately in the work of Christ on the cross. Now I guess for many of us we have come, uh, we have been privileged to come to know God through his, his providential care and we recognise that he is very good and very kind. But we shouldn't be naive to think that because our relationship today is, oh it's fantastic with God, I'm, I'm doing my quiet times and I'm praying to him regularly, uh, we shouldn't Assume and be naive that it will always be the case. See, look how God's providence works in the present. The the author of Ruth is pretty clear about the hardship Naomi was facing. And we should be honest with ourselves and before God about this kind of struggle in our own lives. Because it will come to us at some time. See, having faith in God and his son doesn't mean that we, we have to pretend that life is easy. It's not, sometimes. But simply some really don't think that our circumstances uh, limit God's ability. If God can end a famine and turn a, a family back to him, to, to come back to their homeland, Judah, then he can deal with our stubborn hearts and any difficulty that we face in our lives. Thankfully, God's providence uh, and his blessing does not depend on how good we've been. Naomi was a stubborn woman, as we see, and she's hardly happy about the situation. She was actually very angry. Rather, God's blessing provoked a response in Naomi. And I, I suppose our prayer should be that his blessing as we read his word provokes a response in us to turn back to him. We may or may not see God's goodness around us, but we need to look for it. It's there all around you. His goodness is shown in your own life, in the people around you, in the circumstances that you find yourself. But ultimately, his goodness is found through his word, the Bible. And when you found it, you need to look at it again and again and again and again. Know that God longs to bless you through his providential care today in the present. And we know that in our lives. We should know that in our lives as we turn to him in his word. We know that in our congregation. We don't go without, do we? We live in a place where we have been blessed in so many ways by God's kindness. He provides for us today. But ultimately he provides for us today in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what should be our response, friends? What should we do to put our focus back on ourselves that we run the world and we're we're the centre of our own little worlds? No. In gratitude, we should be generously giving back to God in our service of him, in our coming to encourage others at his church, in telling others the good news of Jesus and the use of our money, loads of different things. Why? Because in so doing, we demonstrate to a world out there that is so self-obsessed So blind to the goodness of God. Always exalting self. (coughs) No, in our service of God, we demonstrate to that blind world that God is good. That God provides for today, for all our needs, all that we need to be more like Christ. And ultimately, he provides his son to be a substitutionary sacrifice on the cross so that we can be with him forever. God is good, my friends. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in, in this story, there aren't really any role models at this stage which we should uh, want to emulate. They have run away from you. They have disobeyed you. Yes, they might have turned to you, but with kind of resentment as well. But help us to see your kindness in this story, your providential care of provision. And we know that so much more, so much more clearly than any of the characters of this story because we know it in your objective word and we know it ultimately in your son, the Lord Jesus Christ who has given us everything. Food on our plates is so secondary in comparison to the food, the eternal food of the Lord Jesus Christ, who feeds us for heaven, satisfies us with his righteousness before you. Lord, you have been so kind and you are so good that when we find ourselves in times as Naomi found herself, times of desperate struggle and need, we do the one thing that Naomi did that was right here, that we turn back to you, knowing you are good, knowing you are kind, and knowing that you long to provide for us. Lord, if we leave here with anything, help us to recognise your kindness, ultimately in Christ. Amen. we're going to sing our final song tonight love before the dawn